it's Christmas. And I'm assuming that by now most of you are in full Christmas prep mode. If you're not, catch up. Um, everyone else is ahead. Uh, they're, they're in it. Um, some of you I know got an early start, having already seen Facebook pictures of trees and houses lit up. And if you're like my daughter, it was November 1st is when her tree went up, the day after. How many of you are day after Halloween people? Good, there's not that many of you. Um, I, I read somewhere that you're the reason that it snows early. Um, if you just hold on, we would, it wouldn't snow so much. In our house, the tradition is that uh, the decorations come out after Thanksgiving and go up Thanksgiving weekend. So the tree usually comes out on Friday. Um, it gets fluffed, it gets set up, it gets decorated usually on Saturday. Um, all of the other decorations. My job is to pull all of the uh, totes and bins out of the shed into the living room and then say how great it looks when Sarah's all done. Um, she doesn't want me touching it. I don't want to touch it. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll hold the ladder. I'll do things like that, but uh, decorating, not my forte. So Sarah has been baking like crazy, decorating like crazy. We have uh, cookies, uh, all various types of cookies. We have pumpkin rolls. We have uh, all kinds of candies. We have you name it. She is baking it, and I'm not allowed to eat any of it until it's like it's use, you know, till we reach the time when it was being created for Christmas dinner or, or small group coming over or things like that. So at some level, I assume we all are prepping for Christmas. Now, maybe not a Susan Steffi level. Is Susan in here this morning? Those of you that know Susan, I asked Mike, I said, okay, how many Christmas trees do you set up in the house in the Steffi household, how many Christmas trees are there this year in the house? And he said between 45 and 50. Yeah. <gasps> Some of you are like, yes, Susan is my hero. So maybe you're not at that level. But as much preparation as we put into our external surroundings to make things look nice, to look Christmassy, to give that warm feel, we need to prepare our internal environment for Christmas as well, probably more so than the external. These next four weeks, we're going to be walking through this, what's called the season of Advent. And Advent is, simply means arrival or coming. And so this Advent season is, is, is remembering and thinking through the, the coming of Christ. Started back in the sixth century the Advent season of four weeks dedicated to remembering that Christ has come and the anticipation of His return. It's looking back at the coming of Jesus in the manger, a child born to the Virgin, of, of the humble surroundings, of the wise men coming, of His growing up, His life leading Him to the cross, His death, His resurrection salvation, and looking ahead to that promised second coming, that time when the, the clouds will part and the rider on the white horse will march triumphantly with the armies of God behind him, that king of kings in Revelation 19. We've been talking through Nehemiah these last several weeks 
about not mirroring the world, but pointing to a window into another kingdom with another king. Christmas is that window. Christmas is a huge window, probably appropriately decorated, that points us to another world, another king, and another kingdom. Part of the Advent season is the Advent wreath that Don and and Ernie Hickman lit for us this morning. And this first candle, and I put on the back of your, I don't want to go into the whole big detail of what all that wreath is, but I put on the back of your sermon notes kind of an explanation of it that you may want to go home and create your own. It's a great time to kind of a family worship around um, each week uh, when you light a different candle. But the candle that we lit this morning was the candle of hope. That this is a season of hope. Israel for centuries was preparing for the the coming of Messiah, the promised one, the hope of Israel, promised to Adam and Eve in the garden, promised to Abraham, promised to Moses, all of the prophets spoke about, that he would come and save Israel, restoring the kingdom of God. Messiah was the long-awaited hope of Israel. John Eldridge, in his book, um, I can't remember the name of it now, has new in the title, uh, describes hope or, or defines hope this way. It is the confident anticipation that goodness is coming. Hope is the confident anticipation that goodness is coming. And that's what we find in Jesus, the, that his person, his character, he is the hope. The goodness that was, the goodness that is, the goodness that always will be. Jesus is our hope. We need to celebrate that this morning. We need to worship that this time of year. That hope is is probably one of the most important emotions or attitudes that we can have, especially for the believer. Paul listed it in the top three in his letter to the Corinthians, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Love being eternal, love being the one thing that we will still have in heaven. Faith and hope will not be in heaven. Faith will be realized, hope will be realized. Faith is face to face. Faith and hope are for now. Hope is the the attitude that we're to have now in this life. Without hope, without that confident anticipation, The waiting is hard. If we had to wait with no hope, I guess the question really is, what are we waiting for? Without hope, the longer the wait, the harder to hold on to. Without hope, darkness, despair, leads to all kinds of horrible outcomes. Addictions, depression, suicide. That's the world a lot of people live in. A world that a lot of people experience. An emptiness. So they find ways to fill the void. They buy into lies that will make them feel better. If you look around and you don't have to look far, despair is a very prominent attitude of culture today. Even in the church. We've all hit it. I've hit it. I go through those times of depression, of wondering, of 
of, of what's happening, what is going on, kind of losing sight. You take your eyes off of what God is doing. Forget that, that He has a plan, that He's working it, that He's always at His work, and you can get caught in the despair, caught in what's happening, the circumstances around you. As we look around our world, the level of hopelessness is extremely high. And we know, too, that this season tends to, to, to elevate the negative feelings. That all of the external decorating is really only there to hide the internal darkness and emptiness and aloneness. Evil is seemingly winning at every turn. Constant reports of shootings, deaths, hostages, wars upon wars, and it's easy to lose hope. It's easy to focus on those things. And we need to change that. This morning my prayer has been that the people, as what Isaiah said in, in chapter 9 of, of his book, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light shone. I, it is my prayer that this morning we would see the light, maybe in a new way, maybe in a continual way. We came this morning, prayer time this morning was, was seeking out that presence, seeking out that light, asking for God to shine His light into the darkness that is all around us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one I, I admire, love, read his uh, biography, uh, and, and just the life that he lived, relatively short life that he lived. When we were in Berlin, the missionaries took us to St. Michael's Church. Do we have the picture? St. Michael's Church is, it, it is a museum, but it is still a functioning church. They still hold services on Sunday. It's one of the very few uh, actual standing churches that has not been turned into something else, as Eric alluded to a few weeks ago. But this is the, this is the church that Bonhoeffer at the age of 25 was ordained in and pastored. Um, we weren't able to go inside. We got there before it opened. But um, if you know anything about Bonhoeffer, he was a very outspoken person against Hitler, against uh, the Third Reich, against uh, all of the things that were happening in Germany and in the world at that time. And he was arrested being accused of being associated with the plot to assassinate Hitler. He was arrested, thrown in prison. And while in prison, he held church services every Sunday morning for the other prisoners. That's what a pastor does. It doesn't depend on location. And on Sunday, April 8, 1945, as he was leading worship, guards entered the room that they were worshiping in, that he had been preaching in, and they yelled, Prisoner Bonhoeffer, get ready to come with us. To which Bonhoeffer turned and looked at the crowd or looked at the folks in the room and he replied to them, this is the end. But for me, it is the beginning. These were his last known words as dawn the next morning, Bonhoeffer was hanged along with six other co-conspirators. 1940s Germany was a culture of hopelessness. And those words, this is the end, but for me it is the beginning, could only be spoken by someone who understood the source of his hope. That his hope did not lie in the things of this world. 
that his death was actually a, a gateway to experiencing that hope. Those were his words that his, his confident anticipation that goodness was coming. Or spend time with Don and Ernie. For those of you who don't know, Don has been battling cancer for a number of years, five years. And the last report was the chemo was so devastating to her body that they have now decided to stop chemo. But Don's hope was never in the chemo. Don's hope was never in the doctors, in their wisdom and their abilities, great as they are. Her hope is and always, has, always will be in God the one who will sustain her, the one who will. And, and even if it comes to the point that this is the end, it, for her it's just the beginning. I can say that because I've heard her say that. I know that. And the most important part of the equation of all of this is the difference between hope and hopelessness is what you put your hope in. the trustworthiness of the object of your hope. Now, I'm going to go home at 1 o'clock, and I'm going to turn the TV on, and I'm going to hope the Colts win, as many of you are. But you know, their ability to win is not built on my hope. It's not on the fact that I'll probably put a Colts sweatshirt on, and I'll sit down, and I'll root for them, and I may at times yell at the TV. I, not that I've ever been known to do that. But it could happen. But whether the Colts win or not has nothing to do with my hope. My hope is only on them and the power, the ability that they might have. And right now we pretty much stand a 50-50 chance. So where do we look for hope? Isaiah probably prophesied more about the coming Messiah, about Jesus, than any other prophet. That he was preparing Israel for his coming. For the advent of the Savior, the reason that we take these four weeks and focus upon his birth. And so we, we look to the words of Isaiah. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 57. In these verses, 57, 14 to 19, we find three reasons, I think, that we can place hope in God, that we can celebrate this time of, of season with hope. Isaiah chapter 57, verse 14 says, And it will be said, Build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstacle out of the way of my people. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the spirit would grow faint before me and the breath of those whom I have made. Because of the iniquity of the, his unjust gain, I was angry and struck him. I hid my face and was angry, and he went on turning away in the way of his heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and to his mourners. Three things 
that, this, that Isaiah prophesies or tells us here that gives us hope. One is God lives at a different level. God lives on a higher level than you and I do. His existence is far beyond what we see. He says he's high and exalted. The, the greatness, the majesty, the power. I, I'm, I'm always reminded of Isaiah's vision in chapter 6 when he started this whole thing and, and being called to, to be his prophet. And he said he, in a vision he saw the, the, the God sitting on his throne high and exalted and the robe filling the temple and the majesty of it all, far beyond anything that we have ever experienced. That's where God resides. That is every moment for him, high and exalted. He lives in a high and holy place. Our God is transcendent. I love that word. That transcendent means, Webster defines it as exceeding uh, usual limits, extending beyond the usual limits of experience, beyond comprehension. That's where my God lives. Beyond anything I can understand. Anything that I can figure out about God's place, where He's at, His holiness, where He lives, is beyond that. Whatever I can come up with. He's so much beyond us. Lives at a higher, different level, and yet comes down to also reside, he says, with the lowly and the contrite. That's you and me, in case you didn't. We're the lowly and contrite ones. Lowly and contrite could be understood as the crushed and the depressed. And maybe you're not feeling crushed and depressed right now. But put where you are with where God resides, we're all crushed and depressed. We're lowly. We're contrite. We, we are down here in the muck and the mire, in the darkness, in the emptiness, in the aloneness, and maybe we get a little peek every once in a while. We're able to keep our, our nose above water, but that's where we are. And we must never forget, we are here. He is, well, not even there, because that's the best I can reach. He's beyond that. High and exalted, yet with the lowly and the contrite. Contrite means the remorseful, the repentant, the one who understands where they are in relationship to Jesus and the, the separation that is there and, and the repentant, the remorseful for, for our own condition of sinfulness and our separation and, and we cry out to God. And God comes. We've been talking about in Nehemiah this travailing prayer that God comes where He's invited. It's the lowly and the contrite that invites Him in, that calls Him, that cries out for Him to enter into this mess that our life is, the chaos that our culture is, for God to enter in, to break into that, to bring His glory into it, to bring His highness, His holiness his exaltedness into where we live. Jesus said in his sermon on the mount, blessed is the poor in, are the poor in spirit, for they will see God. Blessed are the lowly and the contrite because God will enter in. He resides with them. We will see God in the midst. 
if I'm stuck in the mud, okay, if I'm along and I'm, you know, I, not that I've ever done this as a kid, but you get knee deep in the mud and you can't hardly move and you pull up and you realize your shoe's still a foot and a half down under the, and, and you're just, you're slogging. You, you, you're not sure how you're going to get out of this. You're not, you, do you want someone else standing right next to you that's also knee deep in the mud? They're going to be absolutely no help to you whatsoever because they're stuck. They're trying to figure out how am I going to get out of this mud? What I need is someone who can put one foot on the dry land and one foot in the mud and pull me out, guide me out, lead me out, show me how to get out. That's God. High and exalted, above it all, not affected in any way, shape, or form, and yet able to come down into my mud hole and guide me, lead me clean me. God, high and exalted. To revive, he says, to revive the heart of the contrite. To revive, to comfort, to console, to be a well of life. To put life back in the Spirit, to bring back to life the the crushed Spirit, the, the deadness that sin is in us. We're born dead. Alive physically, but spiritually, we are dead the moment we take our first breath. We are dead spiritually because we've inherited that sin nature that kills us, destroys us. The wages of sin is death. And it's Jesus that comes in, that, 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 that God steps into that and, and can revive the contrite when we, when we repent, when we're remorseful for the condition that our heart is in, separated from Him, and we give his, our life to Him. He revives the heart of the contrite to help us rise above the hopeless situation, to bring a result that goes beyond our usual experience. Some of you know what I'm talking about, that God has a way of lifting, that we can experience God in new ways. Jesus in the upper room the night he was betrayed said, I told you all this. So, so chapter, John chapter 14, 15, 16 is all the upper room as he's sitting with the, the 12 and then the 11 after Judas leaves. And he's, he's explaining to him all the things that they're going to need to know for the next 24 hours or 24 years as to what's about to happen. And he said, I told you all of this so you will have peace because what's about to happen is going to rock your world, men. You're going to see me taken, beaten, killed, buried. You're going to have a sense of hopelessness that you haven't had in years. You're going to have a sense of darkness that you haven't seen in years. I'm telling you all this so that in the midst of all that, all that's going to go wrong in the next 24 hours, you will still have a peace. You'll still have hope. Peace is the word that we're going to look at next week. They all are interconnected. He said, I told you this so that you will have peace. In the world you will have trouble, but take courage. Have hope. I have overcome the world. Jesus, seated at the right hand of God, high and exalted in the high and holy place, has overcome all of this. 
and has the ability to step into and allow us, help us to overcome. He is our overcomer. So if God is above it all and then willingly dwells with me and in me, I have hope no matter the circumstances, no matter what happens, a hope that's not dependent on things around me, but dependent on the character and the person of God who is high and exalted, holy, pure, perfect, loving. So God lives at a different level. Second thing we need to understand is that God thinks and acts at a different level. That high and exalted is not just location. It's who He is. It's how He operates. He operates at a higher level than we do, spiritually. Right? He operates at a higher level. Isaiah chapter 55, He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I want us to understand this morning that God, when He directs us, when, when we give our life to Him and we are seeking His guidance and His next steps, and I just had this conversation with a lady this week who's got a decision in front of her, and she said, what do I do? I said, well, you, you take that to God and allow Him to guide you and walk you through that because God is smarter than you. God is wiser than you. God is quicker than you than you will ever be. He sees farther down the road. He, he can see the outcome of the choice before we've ever made the choice. He knows the outcome. And so we need to constantly, moment by moment, be giving our lives, our choices, our direction to Him and His leading. And that's not always easy. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to choose the wrong thing. God's right there. He'll pick us up. He'll say, okay, let's try this again. His transcendence brings a factor into my situation that I cannot bring. He sees the end. And if we let Him, we'll work all things together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose, to those that are willing to follow, for the contrite and the lowly that will follow with Him, that will wait for Him to move. Waiting is the hardest. At night, not someone once said God's waiting room is the hardest place to be because we don't know how long we need to wait. And then our mind plays tricks on did we miss it? Is God just sitting up there going, come on, come on. No, he's not. Let me just say that right now. He's not. Sometimes we just have to wait. God sees the end. God sees all the obstacles along the way. He's going to clear the path because he's smarter. He's wiser. He's better than you. And without Jesus, there is no hope. Without Him guiding, without Him seeing, without Him thinking and acting three steps ahead of us, knowing where the outcome is, without us leaning into that, there is no hope. The outcome is always, without Jesus, the outcome is always death and destruction. The enemy comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. That's the outcome. Without Jesus, that is always the outcome. Steal, kill, destroy. We do not in ourselves have the power. We don't have the intelligence. We don't have the capacity to operate above this world. 
to rise above the destruction, and at times to get, we get swept up in the schemes of the enemy. If we're not careful, we're going to fall victim to Satan's plan, his plot, his guiding, his leading. This is why we continually cry out. It's why we travail in prayer. It's why we are moment by moment seeking him. There are times we get caught up to believing the way the world believes. And that either we believe God doesn't exist or He's absent or He's silent, He's upset with me, He's just not moving, He's not talking, He's uncaring, He's unloving. And while we may never voice that, we may never actually say that out loud because we know it's not true, we can many times live as if it were true. We live as a practical atheist. And we begin to concern ourselves with the externals, the way things look. Decorate my life with what looks good when the inside is chaos. God lives at a different level, He acts and thinks at a different level. And the third one, and this is where the hope comes. Because if God were just all that, we could still be in trouble, right? But verse 18 says, no. He says, God loves at a different level. He said, I have seen their ways, but I will heal them. I will guide them and restore comfort to Israel's mourners, creating praise on their lips, peace, peace to those far and near. Those verses we looked at from Isaiah chapter 55 where his ways are higher than our ways are actually in the middle of God's explaining his plan of salvation for all the unrighteous people in the world. His ways, his thoughts, how he's going to do it is greater than our ways. But he will. He will come. God knows our sin. He knows your sin. He knows that you're knee deep in something you shouldn't be knee deep in that you walked into, willingly walked into. And you're now so far in, you don't see any way out. God says, no, I, I see his ways. I know where you are at. I know how you got there. I will enter in. I will come in. I will heal. I can save. I can offer salvation. I can cleanse. I can move you out of that. God desires to draw us back, to buy us back. Our ability to have a relationship with God is not dependent on our ability. <laughs> Think of that through, okay? I said it right. Our ability to have a relationship with God is not dependent on our ability. It's dependent upon God drawing us, providing the way, and us lowly and contrite being remorseful and repentant and following Him. So God comes to us. He's seen our ways. He's seen our sinfulness. He's seen our wrong philosophies and our wrong thinking, our, our wrong decisions, our rebelliousness. He's seen all that. And yet when He sees it all, He says, I still will heal them. 
I still will come to the lowly and the contrite. Christmas is that annual reminder of the hope that we have in Christ. And, and let me just give you a, a fair warning to those that aren't lowly and contrite, to those that are unwilling to come to Him and, and bow before Him. He says at the end of chapter 57, but the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up refuse and mud. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. Our hope, my hope, your hope, our only hope is Jesus. There is no hope beyond Him. And we're reminded of that every year, and I think we need reminded every year that He is our hope. And He pleads with us to turn from the foolishness of this life to the, the mirror of this life, the darkness and the emptiness, and come to Him. I want to invite the worship team to come back up. I remember driving to a friend's house once, and this was before GPS, okay? Some of you have no concept of what that was, means. This is even before cell phones. This is before MapQuest. This is before the nice lady from Australia telling me when to turn. I always pick the Australian accent. I don't know why. I was pretty sure I knew how to get to my friend's house. I had never been there before. But he explained the, the way and the directions, gave me directions, where to turn, how to... And when I got to the first turn, there was a road closed sign and a detour. And I had to go a different way. And I started meandering through, thinking I knew, okay, I know how to get back to where I can get, I can get over, yeah, okay, I get. And eventually I realized I was lost. I had no idea how to get to my friend's house, and I had no way to call, no way to, and I wasn't sure I could even get back to my own house at this point. And that's where some of us are living every day. Lost. Not exactly. We think we know where we're going. We're not exactly sure. Life sent us a curve, and now we're stuck, and we're not sure even how to get there, not sure how to even get back. Cry out to Jesus. Jesus sees where we are and will heal, will come in, will provide salvation, will provide that love and that care. I gave you a quote of the bottom of your sermon notes from Paul David Tripp, and he says, the Christmas story reminds us that hope will never be found if you look horizontally. True hope is found only when you look for it vertically. It's not enough to say that God gives us hope. What the Christmas story declares to us is that God is hope. Hebrews 11 says, faith is confidence in what we hope for. Confidence, not because what we hope for is, is so great, but confidence because God is able. God lives 
at a higher level. God thinks and acts at a higher level. God loves at a higher level. And so I can have confidence that God is hope and assurance of what I do not see because God sees. So this season we're reminded of the hope we have in Jesus. Maybe this morning you need to become lowly and contrite. Maybe for the first time, maybe once again, and cry out to him.